what like what I really hope we could do with this project is find some toad populations that like find a toad population that no one knows about that's been persisting and that has been persisting in the face of chytrid and that those toads could potentially have some kind of resilience or resistance to the disease and that we could then use that to use those toads to bring the population back across Colorado. I think that's the theory of change for how they're saved in the state. This episode is brought to you in part by our sponsor, Tidal Influence, a Californian ecological consulting firm who proudly supports environmental education and all of the diverse conservation efforts that Pelicanus works to highlight. Visit their website at tidalinfluence.com to learn more about what they do to conserve our coastal resources and how you can get involved. This podcast is sponsored by Project Dragonfly a master's degree program offered by Miami University dedicated to ecological and social change. Project Dragonfly offers a part-time master's of arts in biology degree focused on conservation or a master's of arts in teaching for teachers. The program is designed for working professionals and can be completed from anywhere in the United States. Learn more at projectdragonfly.miamioh.edu. Welcome to Pelicanus. In this episode of Conservation Conversations, we talk with Alex Wells and Derek Kossaboon of the Denver Zoo about boreal toad conservation in the Rocky Mountains. In collaboration with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, the Denver Zoo is taking two conservation actions to bring boreal toads back from the brink, a breeding and release program, as well as a community science program to get the community involved in saving this species. Thank you so much for tuning in. Enjoy our conversation with Alex and Derek. If you're just listening, we've got a lot of really cool photos on the video version of this episode. Derek and Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, If you don't mind, please just introduce yourselves and tell us who you are and what you do with the Denver Zoo. Go ahead, Alex, first. Sure. Um, Thanks for having me on the podcast, Austin. So... I'm Alex Wells. I'm the community conservation coordinator at Denver Zoo. And what that means is that I coordinate all of our local community science projects. And community science, we use interchangeably with citizen science. And it basically just means that I get volunteers, members of the public, to go out into the mountains and collect data on some cool local wildlife for us. Awesome. Derek, go ahead. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having us. my name is Derek Kostaboon. I'm a keeper here at the Denver Zoo, have been uh, since 2001, and uh, basically take care of the day-to-day husbandry and needs of our um, animals, um, primarily focused on amphibians. Um, and yeah, that's what I do here. And I actually, I just uh, did a little research the other day uh, on the, the boreal toad, and it I, news to me, it was a subspecies of the, the Western toad. So it was kind of cool seeing it's just like a little bit different. So actually, yeah, um, I'm not sure who's the best person to ask this question, but do you guys mind kind of just talking about the, the biology of the toad? And, uh, you know, we can get into why it's endangered and all that. Uh, yeah, so we began our um, dealings and involvement in the captive holdings and you know, attempted propagation of the toad since about 2010. Um, I think what makes the boreal toad really unique is, of course, the environment in which it lives. It's a, a very high altitude toad, which is pretty 
unique for an ectotherm. I mean, we did a release this year that was above 11,000 feet elevation, which is pretty mind-blowing that these things can survive the winter and then and then come above ground and, and put on enough weight and, and enough stores to to make it through the next winter in, in, in as short a time as three to four months. And in the high country of Colorado, we see, you know, tens of feet of snow through the winter. So these guys are surviving that, and I don't think anybody knows exactly sure where they do or how they do that. Um, yeah, and I think something that, like you were saying, Austin, boiled toads are just a subspecies of the Western toads. And we work most specifically with like one or work primarily with two populations of that boreal toad subspecies the utah population and then the colorado population and each population is genetically distinct and one of the ways in which they're distinct is in their response to the chytrid fungus which is the main threat that they face which we can get into and the Colorado population, the Southern Rockies, I should really say, because it's there's a few of the toads up in Wyoming, a few of this population up in Wyoming, and they used to be down in New Mexico as well. Um, the thing that one of the things that makes them unique is that they respond to chytrid incredibly poorly, worse than any other population of the Western toad, um, which is why they have cratered here in Colorado and why we're so invested in preserving them the utah population of boiled toads they're a little bit better but obviously chytrid isn't good for any amphibian it sounds like a unique species where it's an amphibian at really high elevation cold areas which to me doesn't make sense so can you describe the species and kind of like just tell me tell us more about it because that sounds crazy to me yeah so I mean, boiled toads are like a medium-sized toad. They'll fit in the palm of your hand, more or less. Some of them will get to be about that size. The females are a bit bigger. And when you picture it, you're picturing like your pretty classic warty brown amphibian. Pretty slow moving, pretty easy just to pick it up. It's not going to like crazily hop away from you. Um, and one of the key... I mean, there's not a lot, a lot of other toads up at 8,000 feet in Colorado to confuse this one with, but one of the key markers of the boreal toad is that it has a, it has a white line running down its back, a dorsal stripe, we call it. Um, and like all toads, they start out in an egg mass, like this big, long strand that gets all tangled together in the water, and then hatch into tadpoles metamorphose into toadlets and grow their legs and um Derek do you know how long how old the oldest toad that's been found is like 20 years yeah I think uh down at the facility in southern Colorado they have some you know in their late teens yeah crazy a lot longer than you think yeah yeah and they so in terms of in terms of the cold, I feel like most people don't think about amphibians being in um, really cold places, and most aren't. But then you do have a handful who, like, will freeze solid during the winter, like wood frogs or spring peepers. And boil toads, they don't actually freeze during the winter. They go down subsurface, like below the freeze line, and then um, brewmate, it's called, rather than hibernate through the winter. 
So it's almost yeah. like a, a torpor where they're kind of like half hibernated. Yes. That's cool. Okay. That probably has a lot to do with their longevity, right? I mean, because when they're brewmating, all the metabolic processes and energy needs are reduced. So probably extends their life a little bit. Mm. I wish I could do that. <laughs> just give up for like four months and like, I'm just going to go to sleep. I'll wake up in a next season. <laughs> okay. So you kind of mentioned their range. They're in, uh, up into, uh, Wyoming, Colorado, basically the Southern Rockies so, and a little bit into Utah. So is, so well, really there's the Western toads across the Western United States and the boil toad is across much of that range. But then the population, there's a handful of different populations of the boreal toad and the two that we work with, the Utah population, they're in Utah, I think just in the Wasatch and Winter Mountains. And then the Southern Rockies population um, are in Wyoming through Northern New Mexico, Southern Wyoming through Northern New Mexico. And so do we know the historic range? Uh, is, is that the historic range or did they kind of shrink over the last, you know, couple decades or is that kind of just, Hey, this is where they are. I, I suppose that is the historic range for the Southern Rockies population. Um, like these days, those toads, as far as we know, they are not in New Mexico. And even though they're just like, they're, dispersed across the Southern Rockies in Colorado. It's not like that population is contiguous is our sense of it. Like there's a biologist at Colorado Parks and Wildlife who we work with fairly closely and his low estimate for the number of adult toads left in the state in the wild is 800. And they're like the size of the palm of your hand. And so there's no chance that they, I think there's utterly no chance that they're actually occupying all the historically inhabited high elevation wetlands that they used to. But in the past, we have a lot of evidence to suggest that they were everywhere and that they roamed like crazy. There's really, really low genetic, um, like diversity, um, within that population, not necessarily from a genetic bottleneck, but because there was obviously very high gene flow across the population. So the toads down in Northern New Mexico and the toads up in Southern Wyoming and the San Juans and Grand Mesa and Rocky Mountain National Park, they're all very genetically similar, which suggests that genes were flowing from one to the other, which means that you had a lot of toads and that they were like pretty contiguous across that area. And so as like their populations have kind of shrinked, they're kind of creating little genetic islands throughout that range. That's the concern. I don't think it's really happened yet. And so you guys mentioned that the, the big issue with them is the chytrid fungus uh, or BD. Can you um, kind of explain what that is and how it affects them? And either, either one, you know, whoever, whoever wants to explain the mechanism of the fungus. <laughs> well, I think mainly it's, it's a chytrid fungus that basically breaks down the keratin within the toad's skin and disrupts its osmoregulatory processes and leads to a very high imbalance of salts and potassiums and ultimately results in the frog dying of, of heart failure, heart attack because of those imbalances. But it's, uh, it's one of the few funguses that does not break down, you know, woody debris, which is a natural um, 
role of fungi in an ecosystem is to break down that cellulose cell, which is a very difficult thing to break down. And for some reason, this one has switched over and started breaking down the keratin within the frog skin. And that's kind of why it doesn't seem to really hit the tadpoles as hard because the keratin content within their skin is pretty much um, centralized in their beak. So they can get it, um, but it basically waits until um, they morph out breaks down that uh, outer layer of skin and then messes up, like I said, their, their osmoregulation processes. Okay. So for like the fifth graders that are like me listening, <laughs> so that basically, and jump in if you want to explain it a little bit differently, but it kind of eats away at the outer layer of skin. And because they're amphibians, they get a lot of their oxygen through their skin. And it kind of messes with that system to where then they eventually don't get enough oxygen to where their heart fails. Is that correct? Yeah, oxygen and, and, and you know, other ions, potassium and sodium and that kind of thing. But yeah, basically absorbing everything through their skin from the environment. Um, and, and yeah, that, that layer of skin is compromised by the chytrid. And is, is the chytrid fungus, is it... I know it's like I've heard of over, you know, about it for the last 20 or 30 years or so, but is that, is that something new or is that something that's been in existence and they've had um, uh, genetic or uh, biological responses to it? Or is it kind of like, you know, climate change, things are changing and then now it's, you're seeing more of it? It's, this is, it's always one of the mysteries of, like global change biology, how these, when these things start, probably chytrid, chytrid's definitely not native to Colorado, that's for sure. It probably got here sometime in the middle of the 20th century, like probably towards the latter end. And it's really only like around the 90s that Colorado Parks and Wildlife started to notice like, oh, something is going on. This is a huge problem. Um, and there's even like, there are a few folks who'd say that there's a, there's a chance that like wildlife biologists going out to those high elevation remote sites um, actually may have played a role in spreading the disease there because this was before like biosecurity and disinfection protocols were on their minds. Um, but I mean, climate change definitely, I mean, knock on wood, I don't think climate change is doing the toads any favors, but I think that their current state is, the natural progression of the disease in Colorado, just as it spread to more and more sites, knocked out breeding at those locations, and then just like prevented recruitment. We can get into what you, the programs you guys are doing, but like what, what can be done about the, the BD, the, the chytrid fungus? Like what, what is it that you guys or anyone can do to help the toads from this spreading fungus? I think in general, it's going to be a really, really difficult thing right but you know specifically for research some of the things we just mentioned you know making sure your gear is disinfected or some sometimes gear doesn't even leave the site now and it's specific to that site to make sure that uh, you're not spreading anything around but for the general populace i don't i don't know if there's much just education that it's out there maybe and um if they wanted to take extra precautions to maybe step in a foot bath or something, if they're hiking different trails within the same day. But realistically, I don't know how, you know, how 
effective that's gonna be <laughs> yeah I, th I think the thing is like you can slow down Kitrid, and i think that's definitely happened in the last like decade plus like i think more protocols around keeping certain like toad sites secret not um like disinfecting when you go up to them is prevented those sites from getting Kitrid, but eventually i think there's no chance it's not i think Kitrid is going to get everywhere in the state eventually there's no stopping it there's no stopping an invasive like that it's just going to happen so what really has to happen for boreal toads to persist is they have to have some kind of resilience or resistance to the disease and that i think is the long-term hope that we have and i think that's i mean derek could speak much better than this but i think that's where we'd really love for the zoo's breeding program to go at some point like to breed kitchen resistant toads yeah, that was going to be my next question. And, you know, I, I didn't want to throw you guys on the spot in case this wasn't possible yet or at, ever. But um, we talked to somebody who's doing um, white bark pine yeah, research in uh, uh, Crater Lake National Park. And they're breeding and uh, outplanting uh, the rust resistant uh, white bark pine. So I was like, oh, maybe that's a similar thing for boreal toad. But I, don't, I just don't know if, we're, if you guys are, if the research is even there, you know. I think it's heading that direction, but yeah, that's a little bit beyond the scope of what we deal with here. But yeah, you, I think you'd have to first identify where that's happening in nature, get those into our, you know, populations in captivity and then select for it. Um, and I know there's, there's some research being done also with, you know, additive um, bacterial communities that you can apply to the frogs upon release that might help them be more resistant. Or, or help them persist. So there, there is some research going on about that. And that is, would be the ultimate goal, right? If we could make sure everything we release is selected to be, you know, resistant to a degree from the fungus. Cause like Alex said, I think that's, that's the only way that they stay on the planet is if they figure out a way to do that naturally or, or, or with our help. Yeah. Yeah. I think like right now, what we're trying to do is just keep toads on the landscape. Like, like, was it 570-ish tadpoles this year, Derek, in Colorado? Yeah, just yeah. about 600, so like, yeah. There's 570 this year, hopefully many more next year. And what we want is just to keep these populations alive, like, for as long as possible um, in the face of Kitchen, with the hope that eventually, like, genetic resistance to the disease will develop if they're able to present if they're able to persist in the face of it for long enough, or we'll find toads out in the mountains that have some existing resistance to the disease, and then hopefully take them back to facilities and um, breed them up and export their genes around the state. Okay, so you just threw out the number 570. Is that what was found in during the surveys in the wild or that is that what you guys put out into the wild that's what we put oh, okay. out back okay. into the Thank wild this year this year i was gonna say if you yeah. guys only found 570 <laughs> tadpoles in the wild it's like man we are we're oh. closer to <laughs> to extinction than i than i thought oh. but no that's good <laughs> oh no i could yeah i could tell you some negative numbers about the number of toads we found in our actual surveys this year but. yeah 
That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we would be ecstatic if we found 570 boil anything yeah, on our survey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like we did. So in addition to the breeding and reintroduction work that Derek is really deeply involved with on the community science end, we launched a new program this year that's all around surveying historic boreal toad habitat, like locations where boreal toads have been seen in the past, but haven't been seen in a while. And that's like the assumption is that that's because of Kitcher. Um, and so we did surveys at 12 sites across the mountains this year with like around two surveys at each of those locations, hoping we'd find something. There was optimism from, optimism from CPW that we would. I mean, cautious optimism because you can never be too optimistic in boreal toad world. And over the course of many surveys this summer and many different locations, we found exactly one adult toad in one of at one of these sites, which was actually a really big deal. Like a toad hadn't been seen in that spot in many, many years. And so it was really a bit of a success. And it's actually, yeah, like there's a decent chance that that toad is a recolonization from a nearby site that has had some reintroductions in the last um, few years. So that's a good sign, but it definitely wasn't like, I mean, you can never, your numbers are never super impressive in Boreal Toad World. Yeah, I mean, that number sounds really bleak, but when you think about what the locations and, you know, the context, that, that's actually some, you know, cause for hope that it's like, yes, it's one toad, but, you know, one toad doesn't just pop out of nowhere. It either, like you yeah, said, exactly. came from another site or there's other toads there you just didn't yeah. see, so... Yeah, yeah exactly. They're so hard to find. Oh are they really? God. Are they just oh the, the habitat that you're searching and and yeah the size of the toad? It, they're very difficult um, animals to survey. Yeah, Derek, do you mind kind of talking about the captive rearing program and kind of what all that entails? Uh, and I know it's I know it's going to be a really large, complex program that you're going to boil down into a few minutes. But uh, do your best. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, sure. So uh, we reserved our, uh, received our first toads from the Utah population that we work with here back in 2010. Um, and we got them just as, you know, metamorphs. Basically, the, the head biologist for that project was collecting egg strands from the wild, bringing them to a captive rearing facility in southern Colorado. And they would, uh, you know, try to hatch them out and morph them out. And they did. And... Uh, we got a population from that from that uh, occurring. And so we reared them up and had been trying to actively breed them probably since 2016. And then in 2019, uh, we had on staff a reproductive specialist who contacted another reproductive specialist who was working at the Detroit Amphibian Center at the time. And they came up with uh, a pretty specific hormone protocol to administer to the toads upon bringing them out of brumation. Um, and in 2019, that worked and we had our first successful breeding of that population and, and reintroduction that same year as well. That's awesome. Yeah, it's, it's a fairly new program then. Absolutely. When we started, we just kind of occupied a, a little bit of unused space at the other end of the zoo, um, just with maybe one, one enclosure, one tank one rearing tank and uh, just this past year about a year and a half ago we built a dedicated facility from 
from some unused space that uh, that we acquired and set up several, you know, about 10, 12 rearing tanks and uh, partnered and collaborated with the Colorado Parks and Wildlife from that same facility in Southern Colorado and got 10, is it 10? Yeah, nine distinct populations of boreal toads that they, they have in their facility and uh, moved them up here. And uh, we got a lot eggs from, I think, five of those localities, but not a lot of successful fertilization and got successful fertilization and, and tadpoles from two of them. And from those two populations, we did a translocation reintroduction uh, this spring with those guys. So earlier you said that you guys released uh, 570 um, was it tadpoles, right? And is that like an average number or is that a, a really good year? Or, you know, what, what kind of... Um, release numbers are you generally looking at well it, it's kind of too early to tell but that just judging by the number of eggs that they lay and the percent of fertilization that we had this year it's actually a pretty low number um we were happy to have some success our first year doing it of course but um yeah but compared to the amount of eggs laid um that's that's a pretty low number that we hope to you know increase many fold over <laughs> for sure if we can get the problem we were having is like i said we had a lot of overposition a lot of egg laying but the males did not sync up their amplexus and fertilization with the females laying their eggs and we've talked to some people who are uh, studying different ways and different uh, timing of the hormone um, introduction to try to sync those two up so if we can get those synced up we should have a lot higher number of reintroduction because it basically comes down to just a numbers game for what we're doing. If we can just flood the environment with, you know, hopefully thousands, if not tens of thousands of tadpoles, we might, you know, find that population that does persist uh, with the chytrid and then go from there. Can you talk more about your community science program? You know, like how did it get started and, you know, like... Like you kind of mentioned where people are doing it, um, but I'm I'm also interested in, in who is doing it. Is it yeah. is it zoo volunteers? Is it anyone that wants to join? Is it a INAT group? Like like what does that program actually entail? Way back in 2010, we Denver Zoo and another organization called Rocky Mountain Wild started a community science project with pikas, and we've been running that since then. And through doing that, we've kind of built a reputation and a set of experience with community science that I think serves us really, really well. And I like has given us a lot of credibility in that field locally. And so we wanted to do something similar with boreal toads because they're a species that people don't think about. People in Colorado don't really know what a boreal toad is. Um, but as well, they are a really underfunded species. I mean, like Colorado Parks and Wildlife has done an incredible job leading the charge on their conservation here in Colorado. Like they do so much work, but they are not at the capacity that they, I think, want to be and that I think the boreal toad could benefit from them being at. And so there's just a lot of things like field work that they would like to do that they just haven't had the capacity for. And like community science is I think an amazing fit oftentimes for um, needing more capacity 
because you can recruit folks to go to sites that take a long time to get to require a lot of effort, like involve a species that has a really low detection probability. And so it's really beneficial to have lots of volunteers out there looking for them. And you can do that not for free because you have to have staff like coordinating the program and managing it, but for less effort, I would say than like once a community science project really gets going less effort than it would take for two people to do a hundred surveys. The things we wanted to figure out were, are there boil toads at these like places where they used to be, where we really hope they still are? Are they persisting there? And what are the habitat characteristics of those places where they are persisting? Like what makes good boil toad habitat? And based on that information, we could um, figure out like, what makes a good reintroduction site? Where should we put the baby toads that we're putting out into the wild? This is our first year of trying to figure those things out. We started advertising the project back in May, I want to say. We're eternally behind schedule in these kinds of things. We started advertising it back in May, and we had volunteers out in the field with us by start of June. And I think we had... Oh gosh, I think over 250 people express interest in the project, which is awesome, like way more than we were expecting. And in terms of like actually getting folks out into the field with us, we had 76 volunteers. And these are folks like, it's hard to like describe them as a single demographic, to be honest. Like they aren't necessarily all, like the vast majority didn't have a pre-existing relationship with Denver Zoo. Um, and it's not like they're all amphibian lovers or all retirees or like all the classic um, stereotypical demographic of community scientists. Like we absolutely do have our older retirees, but then there are also like plenty of um, like parents who came out with their kids or like young 20 somethings who are just excited to do like to hike with a purpose. I mean, that's exactly what it is. I mean, I used to run a couple of programs like that and it was always people mm -hmm. like, well, I hike anyway. So I wanted to be able to like, you know, look for the birds or look for tracks or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that's the whole idea with it being capacity building. Like it's a lot of effort for field biologists to go out to all these sites, but there are plenty of folks who are going to go out hiking anyway on their day off. And maybe it's not too much of an ask to ask them to disinfect their boots, carry some muck boots with them and just stroll around a wetland and look for some toads while they're up there. Like the nice thing about boiled toads is that they live in some pretty beautiful places and people don't oftentimes think about wetlands. They're just like amphibians. They're a pretty forgotten ecosystem. I would say, I mean, by the general public. And that's unfortunate because they're really such beautiful places and up here in Colorado like they're really critical to our watersheds they provide habitat for a lot of really interesting animals and they're also just very beautiful that's cool so you said this this uh program started or this sorry the community science aspect of this program started this last <laughs> spring yeah it started we got volunteers out into the field June 2022 and then we really wrapped up field work in August and the idea is that you can take that data and then give it to uh, 
CD, uh, CDW, CDW or yep. and your any any of the partners and say like here's where we found toads, and then that can uh, help. Yeah identify areas for reintroductions or, or whatever yeah it can identify areas for reintroductions it is really critical for us to know where toads are still on the landscape um like you have to know where something is if you want to conserve it and how it's doing um yeah and then like the toad that we found at a location this summer the single adult toad like just that single sighting um, actually influenced Colorado Parks and Wild Parks and Wildlife management plans all by itself because there, my understanding is that there were plans for um, actually doing a release in that area um, prior to that toad being found. But then once the toad, once it was known that there was still at least one toad persisting there, it suggested like, okay, maybe we should hold off on flooding this site with new genetics. Maybe toads are still in this area. Some areas may need your introductions and some areas you're just going to mess things up. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think what, like what I really hope we could do with this project is find some toad populations that like find a toad population that no one knows about that's been persisting and that has been persisting in the face of chytrid and that those toads could potentially have some kind of resilience or resistance to the disease and that we could then use that to use those toads to bring the population back across Colorado. I think that's the theory of change for how they're saved in the state. Uh, the, the Kind of the last thing we usually talk about is, you know, like what got you into this field? Because we do have a lot of young uh, people like in high school, college, or even just like really young um, interested, but like don't really know what to do. And like, they know they like animals, they know they like plants or whatever, but they just don't like, the idea is that we're kind of making making this a thing where like this is a possibility for your life <laughs> you know you don't have to like go work at a bank and like just go go hiking on weekends if you really want to do this this is a possibility so by doing that we just uh to do that we just kind of say you know we ask uh like what was it that got you into this field and and uh you know what we're getting what keeps it in you because it's like a it can be a really dejecting field and and uh hard thing to keep doing day to day. But um, so, yeah, what is your, what was your inspiration and what keeps you here? Sure, for, for me, it was just, I think where I grew up was the ultimate beginning. We had a, a large forested backyard with a creek down at the bottom of the hill. And I spent as much as time possible just down there flipping rocks, looking at salamanders and finding snakes and romping around. Um, and then, I think it was my sophomore or junior year in college, I had a herpetology professor. I was just taking all the ologies I could, you know, in an environmental studies program. And that was the first time I was really introduced to field work and data collection and kind of figured out, boy, you can figure out a ways, you know, to, to do that for a living. <laughs> and he, and he was so into it and took us on so many cool research trips that, uh, that's when herpetology really became my focus. Um, ended up here at the Denver Zoo, who really kind of gets behind a lot of the conservation and the field work, um, which for me, you know, I love what I do here at the zoo, but I also love getting out into the field um, and doing the field work. So that's what kind of keeps the passion burning for me um, is just getting involved with an organization like this that stands behind, you know, 
the ethos of conservation, you know. It's a it's a new trend in, in zoos going from being a zoo that does conservation work that being now we're a conservation organization that has a zoo. And so it's always good to see that, you know, bigger zoos uh, that a lot of people visit are doing that. And I know the Denver Zoo is, is up there with at the top of top of the list, you know, uh, so it's. Uh, Absolutely. I, I think nowadays for any institution like ours to stay relevant, that's that's where it's all headed. Right. And and since I've been here, like I said, I've been here since 01 and I've had the privilege of, you know, going to Panama and working with the Panamanian golden frog to Peru to work with Lake Tigicaca frog. And now we're kind of focusing more in our backyard with the boreal toad. So throughout my career here that, like I said, the zoo has really kind of put up when it came time to not just talk, but, you know, send guys out into the field and, and focus on captive breeding programs. And it's really fulfilling with this boreal toad to have it come full circle and actually reintroduce animals where we want them where we want to see them you know in their natural habitat in in and where they're native to and it, it felt really really good to have that finally come full circle because that's that's a, that's the goal of a lot of programs but it's it's difficult to achieve there's there's so many intricacies and nuances to that that you have to consider when you're bringing something out of their natural environment and then putting them back it uh, it felt and feels really good to be a part of this program for sure yeah, I've said it before on on the show. It's it's as cool as it gets. It's like something was in a place, it's no longer there, and we put it back, and it's doing well. It's like that's that's you know, it doesn't get any better in this field. That's, that's it. That's the goal, right? That's the ultimate yeah. goal for sure. Yeah, you know, when you're dealing with a a species that is not doing so well uh, for a lot of different reasons, and it's such a complex issue, it's like you kind of need something that keeps you going to wake up every day. Well, other than just like, Hey, I got to save this species. But like, you, you also have to have something that makes you think that it, it's possible. And yeah. so, um, yeah. So how did you get into this field? What, what kind of made you want to do this? And, uh, yeah. How, how are you, how are you moving forward and, yeah. and still keeping your, your sanity? Yeah, totally. Um, so, I guess similar to Derek, where I grew up played a big role in um, why I do the work that I do. Like, I grew up in Western Colorado, like, surrounded by national forest, and that had a huge impact on me as a child and, like, as a young adult, too. Like, I spent so much time out in the mountains, and I think I just gained this deep, deep appreciation for having that. And, um, like, I don't take it for granted at all like it's such an incredible place to have gotten to grow up and um like i derive a lot of meaning and excitement and joy from those places and that like the ecosystem of western colorado and the rocky mountains so it's really cool then to now have a job where all my work is involved is focused on preserving that landscape and protecting those species um i think that um, my interests are very much at like the ecosystem level, like how the whole system functions and fits together and how people exist within it and benefit from it and also harm it. And at, in this job, I really focus very much on like the biodiversity side, like the composition of the ecosystem and what species are in and a few specific species that we've decided to care about um for good reason because they're really really cool 
Um, but I think that I just really enjoy being able to focus on a, like the Southern Rockies ecosystem as a whole. Yeah, it's kind of your backyard there, you know? Yeah, it very much is. I'm doing this interview while looking right at it, facing west. Yeah, to your other question. It's it's very hard to be... If you, you are, like, a pure realist, it's very hard to be utterly hopeful about everything. But part of why I love working on Boiled Toads specifically is that... Th- there's a like you can see that there is a way like a reasonable way that we can save them here in Colorado like with pikas the other species that I work on at the moment they're still doing okay here in Colorado but climate change is the big existential concern for them but with boreal toads I do think like all right if we can just find some toads that are resistant to this disease then like we can stop it. We can save them in the state. And I think that having that like logical path is so exciting and essential for me because it makes me feel like I'm not just doing meaningless acts or just doing virtue signaling or whatever. It's not just um, like watching a species decline, knowing that you're not sure how you're going to stop that decline. Instead, it's like, all right, we're, we are taking action. And I think it's reasonable that it'll work. Like, I don't know yet how, I don't know yet that, um, I don't know when, I don't know where those special toads are, those super toads, but I do think it's reasonable that they're out there. Yeah. And you know, another cause for hope for chytrid fungus is that it's not like it's you guys are the only ones dealing with it. It's not like it's not the only species dealing. With it. It's like the, it's the entire U.S. or probably way further. I, I just don't know yeah. about it. That it's like there's hundreds or thousands of researchers that are trying to figure out how to curb this fungus. So a breakthrough is bound to happen. Um, you know whether it's like a you know a golden bullet type thing or if it's just like hey we found some things to kind of curb the effects in the short term for sort of so long-term re, uh, restoration of the species can, can happen. So, yeah, I think there's reasons for optimism on boreal toads. I really do. That's cool. Yeah. So I guess along the same lines of, uh, you know, all the great conservation work that do the zoo is doing, um, how mm-hmm. can people in the Denver area get involved? Folks who are here in Colorado, you don't necessarily have to be in the Denver area, but we are pretty focused on Colorado right now. Um, and I don't expect that to change. Um, you can go on to Denver Zoo's website and go to denverzoo.org slash boreal hyphen toad hyphen conservation hyphen team. And that's our webpage. And you can sign up for our email list on there. We are not going to be running any kind of volunteer event until May of 2023. But once the summer rolls around, We'll be running trainings up in the mountains. We'll be getting folks out into historically occupied wetlands. And hopefully we'll have a lot of folks out there looking for boreal toads. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. And uh, I know you're just getting over being sick. So I really appreciate you uh, sticking it out. Thanks for having me.
Thank you again to Alex and Derek for taking time out of their busy zoo schedules and for all the great work they do for the biodiversity of Colorado. Host and producer for this episode is Austin Parker. Music was provided by a Picture Book Studios. Thank you again for tuning in. Please like, comment, and subscribe. We'll talk with you next time.